Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, June 5th, 2014. You know, it is hard to believe this is my second to last episode of Fighting for the Faith in the state of Indiana, at least from this particular location of my secret pirate cave. Yeah, these are the things I tell myself to, you know, make me feel like my life is exciting and stuff like that. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being sent out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles and see if what people are saying actually squares with God's Word. Now, one of the things that we do from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith is we talk about the emergent church movement. Now, For the most part, the emergent church movement under the name emergent church, well, it's it's bankrupt. It's defunct. It's, um, you know, that that horse died a while ago. In fact, you'll notice that it's been a long time since we've done a Brian McLaren update. Well, one of the reasons why it's been such a long time since we've done a Brian McLaren update is because Brian McLaren doesn't get invited to speak at uh, evangelical megachurches and stuff anymore. And uh, he's not being read by, uh, you know, kids in uh, evangelical youth groups and stuff. Uh, For the most part, because he's come out gay affirming and, and, you know, and his theology is really, really crazy. I mean, pretty much universalistic. Uh, You know, you can be a follower of God in the way of Buddha or a follower of God in the way of Muhammad. Um, You know, pretty much what's happened is, is that he's ended up in the uh, the liberal ditch, and uh, and he only pretty much gets invited to speak at mainline liberal type of events and things like that. Although from time to time, the History Channel will invite him to come speak about religion, which is always so fun to watch. Um, but the, uh, the the reality of the situation is is that Team Emergent can't fly under the name Emergent anymore uh, because people know what that is. They understand what the brand is. They they understand it's basically postmodern liberalism uh, that you know for the longest time was doing everything that it could to stay under the. Uh, auspices of evangelicalism and be considered evangelical when it isn't in any sense of the word. It's just 
poisonous, toxic, postmodern liberalism, which is different than modernist uh, liberalism. In, in fact, uh, it, from time to time, it actually is probably beneficial to describe the two differences here. Uh, uh, modernist liberalism uh, comes out of you know, the Enlightenment and the modernist movement and denies uh, the, the ability of the supernatural. It's a very naturalistic uh, you know, worldview, if you would. And so because they, by, you know, a priori say that uh, miracles are not possible, God doesn't perform miracles. Well, then what happens is, is that uh, you get somebody who's a modernist liberal who's behind the pulpit and what they're, what are they going to do? Well, anytime a miracle shows up, they're going to reinterpret it. And so the idea is, is that Jesus didn't really bodily rise from the grave. No, that's not possible because miracles aren't possible the way the modernist liberal would argue. Um, so that means that, uh, you know, the uh, disciples, that the, the joy of Jesus rose in their hearts, you know, something silly like that, right? Um, and so, you know, they'll say Jesus didn't really walk on the water. It just looked like he was walking on the water because he knew where the stepping stones were. And so he was hopping from stone to stone, creating the false impression that he was actually walking on the water. Yeah, see, this, see how this little game works? And so modernist liberalism, you know, is what took over many of the mainline denominations in the 20th century and has led to their demise because, well, if Christ is not raised from the grave, then our faith is in vain. This is not Christianity. This is basically um, unbelief uh, with a, a Christian veneer on the front of it. But anytime you run into you know a, a miracle in the Bible, it's got to be reinterpreted. Well, along comes postmodern liberalism, and this was uh, something spearheaded by the emergent church movement, by leadership network, and by a whole group of people flying under the name Emergent. And you've got to go back about 10 years now uh, to when this thing really kind of first burst onto the scene. Uh, uh, scene. It, scene the, the, onto the scene. I've got to get my uh, metaphors right. But anyway, and postmodernism is different than modernism. Mo uh, postmodernism is an irrational philosophy. And so the postmodernist would say, well, listen, it doesn't really, you know, I'm not, I don't really care. Um, you know, whether or not Jesus really rose from the grave bodily or not. I don't want to get bogged down in on that, uh, in that kind of stuff. The question is, you know, me as, you know, as I'm reading this text, what does it do inside of me? And so uh, a postmodern liberal would say, you know, maybe Jesus rose from the grave. I don't have a problem if you want to say that he did or if he, he didn't. But the, the question is, is that, you know, down deep, you know, as you're engaging this text and reading it in community, how is this affecting and transforming you kind of stuff, right? You see, they're going, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Postmodernism is extremely ir irrational. But the thing is, is that um, it still kind of does to Scripture what the modernists do to it, but with a completely different spin on it. But the conclusions end up being the same, okay? So modernist liberalism eventually got to the point where it was embracing uh, same-sex uh, you know, homosexuals and all kinds of stuff. Well, postmodern liberalism is doing it just a lot quicker, and so, um, but what you have to understand is, is that this volatile, irrational worldview 
of uh, postmodern liberalism flying under the term you know 10 years ago of the emergent church they don't fly under that uh, that that name anymore but they still continue to put people out who are tasked with the job of kind of promoting postmodern liberalism although they don't call themselves the emergent church now the most recent manifestation of uh, you know person who's on team emergent and this is how i refer to her is rachel held evans uh, tony jones was one of the first guys doug Paget was one of the first guys brian mclaren now those guys all play behind the scenes they have coaching jobs and they've got new players on the field and one of the players is rachel held evans so you know we're gonna in fact we're gonna be talking about her today um in fact we'll be talking about her and rob bell and a few other people and so today's hour number one of fighting for the faith is is primarily dedicated to uh, what is the emergent church up to today, even though they don't call themselves that. And uh, we've got a couple of things that we want to feature for you, including a brand new liturgy put out by a group called the Liturgists, and uh, one of their new liturgical songs entitled God our mother. Mm-hmm. And you will be surprised who uh, was the part of the collaborative force of putting together that liturgical song, God, Our Mother. In fact, if you don't follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you know, this is this might come as a shock to you, may not come as a shock to you, but, you know, we'll play that. And then we'll talk about apophatic meditation just to, you know, get some, you know, good rounding out of some weird stuff here in the first half of uh, hour number one. Our for second half of hour number one, we're, we're finally going to get to that conversation, uh, you know, between Matthew Vines, Rachel Held Evans, Tony Jones, and Jay Baker regarding Matthew Vines' book. I think it's fascinating for you all to listen to that. You, you need to listen to it so that you're aware of what's going on. And if you have any friends who think that Rachel Held Evans is the bee's knees and that she's evangelical, she's not. Um, she's as liberal as Brian McLaren, okay? This is a woman who is extremely dangerous, very dangerous, and she's the person on the field, one of the teammates for Team Emergent currently, although they don't fly under that name now. So I think it's important for y'all to get that. So uh, with the, And then in hour number two, just so you know, hour number two, we're going to continue with our theme of uh, when youth pastors attack as for our sermon review. Uh, we're going to be going to Shoreline Church and uh, listening to a sermon called Spies, uh, listening to the youth pastor deliver the sermon in the main uh, service and <laughs> see if you can spot the problems with this particular youth pastor. There, he, Aside from the fact that he can't exegete a biblical passage to save his life, there's a kind of an undercurrent of some of the things that he says that makes me wonder, hmm, maybe the folks at Shoreline Church might want to, you know, just randomly drug screen this kid. D- just saying. You know, you'll when you hear the things he says in this uh, sermon, you're going to think, yeah, I think it's time for this kid to uh, be asked to uh, visit the restroom and and, and empty his bladder into a, a <clears throat> into a receptacle that they can then take and test to see if he's taking controlled or illegal substances. Just you know, just saying. It's, again, you know, you'd be the judge, but <laughs> that was kind of the thing I took away after I listened to that sermon. So I'll let you uh, see if you agree with that particular assessment. So uh, with that, we've got a lot of things to cover today. And since our number one is pretty much dedicated to the singular topic of the current ongoing emergent church, although they don't call them that, well, that reco- they, they don't call themselves that anymore. That requires me to do this. 
These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. That's uh, Rachel Held Evans on the uh, French horn there. Now, you'll notice that this particular orchestra, that they, are, they no longer subscribe to the very limited definitions of notes, and so they just let the spirit guide them as they are playing this homage to uh, Strauss's uh, piece, also Sprock Zarathustra. There, yeah, that's what this is. bleed every time we play that. Okay, so uh, what we're going to be doing at the moment is we're going to be heading to a website, yep, a website, and it's put out by a group that calls themselves The Liturgists, mm-hmm. and we're going to be listening to, well, um, hmm, how shall I explain this, a song, a praise song, if you would, um, entitled God Our Mother, mm-hmm. God Our Mother, and you're thinking, who would publish a praise song entitled God Our Mother. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, the the Liturgists website, and you can find this at theliturgists.com, um, the, the, um, the website itself uh, tells you who is responsible for these, um, these songs, okay? And uh, these particular liturgies. And, well, um, well, how do I explain this? The... Um, the person in the persons in question uh, include well people like Rob Bell. Rob Bell was one of the creative collaborators for the Liturgists Project. Rachel Held Evans also a um, a contributor collaborator for the creative uh, collaboration put out by the Liturgists. Gunger, uh huh, yeah. Uh, Nicole Nordman, uh huh. And uh, sleeping at last, yeah. So those of you listening, you're sitting there going, "Those sound." I know exactly who those people are. Right now, let me read to you the lyrics for this song that you are about to hear. It's entitled "God, Our Mother." Now, are you prepared to sing this song at your church? Here's what it says: "God, our Father, Giver of daily bread, blessing our hands and covering our heads." That's the first stanza. Next one. God, our mother, leading us into peace, drawing and comforting all those in need. And then here's the refrain. Hallowed, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, hallowed be thy name in all of the earth. Next stanza. Jesus, brother, guiding our very step, deliver us and grant us places of rest. So, you know, in in reading these lyrics, I mean, it makes you wonder, what is this trinity that they believe in? It's father, mother, brother, Jesus? <clears throat> yeah, and again, the people who put this liturgy together, this song, this praise song together, include Rob Bell, Rachel Held Evans, Gunger, Nicole Nordman, and Sleeping at Last, as well as some other people. I mean, so if you want to know more about this particular project and who were the collaborative creative forces behind it, 
uh, go to theliturgists.com and click on who. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to listen to uh, God Our Mother so you can get an idea. If you ever hear this being sung at your church, uh, you might want to grab the kids and uh, flee the building. Uh, that's all I got to say. But uh, here's a, a sampling of God Our Mother. Here we go. God Our Father, giver of daily bread, blessing our hands and covering our heads. God, our Mother, leading us into peace, drawing and comforting all those in need. Yeah, God, our Mother. So, yeah, if you, that's what it sounds like. You can hear the rest of it at theliturgists.com if you'd like to. And, uh, well, this kind of leads to the question, um, is it okay for Christians to sing to and worship and pray to God, our mother? Answer, no, not at all. No, not at all. Nowhere in Scripture has God revealed himself as Mother. Now, this is where you need to make an important distinction when you're dealing with the language of both the Old and the New Testament. That is not to say that God has not used feminine metaphors to describe himself, and, and that's the right way of putting it, okay? Um, you know, for instance, okay, Jesus, while he's riding into Jerusalem, and he stops and he cries out, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Now, you'll notice here that Jesus here is using, or employing the uh, uh, a simile, if you would. Metaphor and simile are used oftentimes in t- telling us something about God. But notice here, he says, as a hen gathers her brood. Now, here's the, here's the question. Because Jesus has described himself using simile um, to, as a um, hen, mm-hmm, that would be a female chicken, does that mean that we should interpret this literally and that we can now pray to Jesus, our, our Lord and feathered friend in heaven? No, not at all. In fact, to take this metaphorical language and interpret it literally and then pray to Jesus as our feathered friend in heaven is, well, it shows that you don't know how language is used, okay? Yet when Jesus tells us to pray, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, he's not using metaphorical language there at all, okay, at all. And another thing to keep in mind, and this is something that drives feminists crazy, but it's something that we need to um, understand. That is, is that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. That's right. Jesus is God in human flesh. And on the eighth day after he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was circumcised. Huh? Kind of do the math on that one and you can figure out what's going on here. And Jesus, after he was resurrected, there's no reason to believe that the circumcised portion of his body somehow fell off of him. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, the God that we pray to is a man in the truest sense of the word. And even the Holy Spirit in the New Testament has masculine pronouns attached to his person. So nowhere in Scripture are we ever, and I mean this, ever invited to invoke God or pray to God or you know, think of God as our mother. Nowhere has God revealed that of himself. And all of the, ma- uh, all of the language where God uh, you know, is described in feminine terms, it's always in the form of metaphor and simile, always. And to, to interpret that literally is to miss the point of what's going on in those texts. So when somebody starts playing those kind of monkey games with Scripture, uh, you know that you are, you are dealing with somebody who is extremely extremely dangerous. Um, Invoking God as mother is more akin to the New Age or Eastern religions, but has nothing to do with with Christianity at all or or who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Now, while we're doing a little bit of this emergent stuff, I thought it would be fun to play uh, some more stuff from this liturgist's website. In fact, um, they have... Uh, what they call apophatic meditation. And you're thinking, what's apophatic? Well, apophatic meditation has to do with negative statements. You know, so if you were uh, an apophatic statement would be God is not a woman. (laughs) You see, that's an apophatic statement. So let me play for you a portion of the introduction to their apophatic meditation on the site. And keep in mind, this was put together by folks like, uh, Nicole Nordman, Rachel Held Evans, Rob Bell, Gunger, you know, folks like that. And let's listen to a little bit of their introduction to apophatic meditation. And then we'll just, for the fun of it, and, you know, and chuckles, listen to uh, some actual apophatic meditation that's available on their website and see if you feel like you're drawing closer to God through this more difficult type of meditation known as apophatic meditation. Here's the introduction to explain how this exercise works. There is an ancient spiritual practice that has largely been lost in Western Christianity called apophaticism. The apophatic practice goes back centuries and has influenced people like C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Thomas Aquinas, Dionysius, and St. Augustine. Despite its absence from most of mainstream Western Christendom, The theology and practice of apophaticism is still very active in Eastern and Orthodox denominations of Christianity. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm, well, okay, wow. So, well, this is an ancient, it goes back centuries. I mean, it's really old. Yeah. (laughs) If this is really as old and such an important practice that uh, Christians really should be practicing this, um, wouldn't I find scripture telling me, and this is how you apophatically meditate and hear the steps to do it and go thou and do this. But there's no statements in the Bible that teach us to do that. So, uh, and notice the weird Eastern sounding music that goes along with this. Let's continue. Scientists have studied the brain during different types of meditation and prayer. This research shows that apophatic meditation is more difficult than most forms of prayer and meditation. Mm, more difficult, yeah. Wow, sign me up. I mean, I never was one to take the easy way out. You know what I mean? I, I got to try a more difficult meditation. 
Many people who attempt apophatic meditation aren't able to gain anything from the practice. However, those... (laughs) Many people who try this aren't able to gain anything from this practice. Maybe because it's completely worthless and non-biblical. I mean, but that's just me and my opinion. You know, it's it's not like I found this anywhere in the Bible. ...who do respond often find this practice to be the most powerful form of prayer in helping them experience a connection with God. So for this month's meditation, we would like to invite the courageous to try this with us. It will not be easy. Some of you may find it difficult or even frustrating. Are you are you courageous enough to try this? I mean, super difficult, you know, form of meditation so that you can experience God. But for a few, this may be a lifeline towards experiencing closeness with God. The basic idea of the apathetic tradition is... All right, so we're going to experience closeness. Get ready, folks. We're going to have some major closeness going on with God here using apophatic meditation in just a minute. Let's, see, let's have them explain to us a little bit more of the details of how this works. God doesn't fit our language very well. To illustrate this, perhaps we could turn to science for a moment and ask a question. What are electrons? We learn in school that electrons are little particles that orbit the nucleus of an atom. That explanation is useful, but people who study physics say it's wrong. More sophisticated understandings of physics tell us that electrons teleport from place to place, or that they exist as a cloud, or even that they're a wave function that interacts with other wave functions probabilistically. (laughs) All those explanations are useful, but they're very wrong. You see, nothing in the human experience has prepared our intuitions and language to deal with the reality of electrons. Anytime you describe electrons with words, you are using a metaphor to describe something that is best understood with mathematics. People have to start with an accessible metaphor to understand electrons at all. However, once that understanding is mastered, increasingly challenging explanations are revealed with further study until language is ultimately left behind. Until language is left behind. Uh huh. Definitely postmodernism going on here. And that's just electrons. Now, another question What is God? We say that God is holy, infinite, and beyond our words. We describe God as limitless, all-knowing, and present everywhere. The Bible often speaks of God in ways that surpass language. For example, in Exodus 3, Moses asks God what he should tell people if they ask God's name. God replies with the phrase, Eha Asher Eha, that is very difficult to translate into English, but which is commonly quoted as, I am who I am or I will be who I will be. The book of Isaiah says, My thoughts and my ways are not like yours. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. Okay, now stop for a second. Okay, so fine. God's ways are not my ways. No problem with that, um, but that's a true statement, is it not? So how is it that, that you can then make this leap? Okay, well, you were describing the fact that God, for the most part, is very difficult for humans to understand and that our language can only capture 
concepts about God, but that God in his fullness cannot be, you know, explained by, you know, by the use of language. I don't have a problem with that. But the issue is, is that what God has revealed using human language is true. And so my question is, how do you take the leap from there to, well, now we can meditate and use apophatic meditation as a means of, quote, unquote, experiencing God? On on what basis are you making this claim, right? So you got the gist of it. So let's take a listen to some apophatic meditation. Again, don't try this. Uh, if you're uncourageous, but if you're courageous, try this. I'm not saying to do this, by the way. Um, and let's see if we can experience God through apophatic meditation, the, the most difficult of the meditation practices. And you see if you feel any closer to God after after doing this. Here we go. God is our Father. Am I supposed to be in a sensory deprivation pool while listening to this? God is not our father, for God is more than our father. Uh God is our father. God is not our father because he's more than our father. Woo, that's so deep it's unfathomable. Don't you feel closer to God after hearing that? God is not, not our father. God is not, not our father. Does that mean he is our father? So God is our father. God is not our father. God is not, not our father. Oh boy. I almost had like, you know, goose pimples from that. God is wise. All right, I can tell how this is going to go. Okay, God is wise. God is not wise because he's more than wise. God is not not wise. That's what's coming, right? And, I mean, because they're playing weird, eerie, spiritualish-sounding music in the background, you know, it sounds like it was put out together by you know a New Age music company or uh, whatever. Um, this is supposed to draw me closer to God and make me feel closer to him, really? God is not wise, for God is more than wise. God is not not wise. Yeah, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait a second, I do the, I do this apophatically. This is stupid. This is not stupid because it's more than stupid. This is not not stupid. <sighs> This isn't Christian either. I mean, I don't know what this is. But again, uh, this is from the liturgist's website where you can uh, you know, learn that brand new praise song, God is God Our Mother. Um, and uh, you can engage in apophatic 
Meditation, you know, the most difficult of the meditation practices where you can somehow, if you're strong enough and courageous enough, you know, find yourself having a closer experience with God by embracing such nonsense as God is our mother. God is not our mother because God is more than our mother. God is not not our mother. You, you get what I'm saying. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. More from the emergent church, and their, well, we'll listen to their discussion on uh, Matthew Vines' book. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition. And in Lectio Divina, we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next. When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? 
Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hang himself. Hang himself. Hang himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, "Judas hung himself." It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish. A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseboro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you become supremely dissatisfied with your uh, favorite postmodern liberal, which is again a good thing. You don't want to be satisfied with those people. Just a reminder: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says "Donate," the other says "Join our crew." When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute eight dollars ninety-five cents every month. It's a great way to support us uh, to the ongoing work here of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, we're going to continue with our look at Team Emergent uh, 2014 style, if you would, and listen to uh, you know a conversation, a live chat sponsored by Patheos.com that featured Matthew Vines, Rachel, Rachel Held Evans, Tony Jones, and Jay Baker. And 
And uh, I'm not going to play Matthew Vines. We've played him earlier this week. I want you to hear um, Rachel Held Evans and Tony Jones and maybe Jay Baker if we have time and what they think of Matthew Vines's book. And and ask yourself this question, is this biblical Christianity that I'm listening to or something different? So here's Rachel Held Evans gushing, if you would, over Matthew Vines's book regarding being gay and a Christian. Here we go. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, great introduction to the book. Rachel, um, you uh, have called this book a game changer. Um would you, would you respond a little bit to that and, and what's your response is to this book and, and, and to this topic? Yeah, I think the thing that impressed me the most and that made the biggest impression on me was just, I mean, Matthew is such a Bible nerd, you know? <laughs> like, I thought Jay was a Bible nerd. I thought I was a Bible nerd. Matthew <laughs> is a Bible nerd. <laughs> and, and not only that, he also, you sense in reading the book just how much Matthew loves the Bible, that it's not just, um, you know, like me, he was raised. No, he doesn't love the Bible. Matthew hates what the Bible says, so he's come up with a very clever way to make the words of the Bible say the opposite of what they actually say. To believe that the Bible is really this foundational to our faith and how important and critical it is, but that there, too, is a real commitment to being faithful to Scripture. Uh, and so that was what first... No, he's not faithful to Scripture at all. He's making it say the exact opposite and calling for a movement for Christians to embrace same-sex marriage. Really appealed to me about the book. Um, and also just that it, I felt like it made arguments and um, ideas that I'd been exposed to before, uh, it made them very concise really relatable, easy to understand. I didn't feel overwhelmed by all of the Hebrew and the Greek and all of that, which he knows. He just has a way of communicating in really simple, easy to understand terms. So I guess the reason I feel like it's a game changer is because I felt like this was one of the first books and one of the most accessible books to present um, a way to affirm same-sex relationships uh, in while well, keeping scripture uh, while well, honoring Scripture and keeping Scripture. Yeah, how on earth can you say he honors Scripture when he twists it using sophisticated, you know, sophistry in order to make the Bible mean the exact opposite of what it actually says on the surface of its text? Hmm? The center and truly dealing with and wrestling with the passages in question. And I, I don't know that I've ever encountered one that did it quite so well, and it made the case quite so well, and so personally as well. So, yeah, it was, just, it was a great read. It was a quick read, and I'm still mulling it over, still thinking through things, but I felt like it was um, – I just was really impressed with Matthew and his um, commitment to Scripture, and this is something I value a lot, and it was nice to see that he did too. All right, so that's Rachel Held Evans and her gushing about Matthew Vines' book. Again, folks, if you have anybody that you know that really likes Rachel Held Evans has read her books and thinks that you know she's just the greatest thing that evangelicalism has to offer, think again. She is a true postmodern liberal. She is per- currently 
on the field playing for this year's Team Emergent. She's been playing for Team Emergent for a few for a few years. Question is, how much longer can she continue to pass herself off as an as an evangelical? She's not. This woman is extremely destructive and heretical and one of the collaborative voices behind the new song god our mother so um yeah this gives you an idea what rachel heaven well held evans is all about this woman doesn't represent biblical christianity in the slightest but now let's see if tony jones is gushing about um matthew vines's book and i'll kind of uh, clue you in here Jones is not exactly thrilled with the book because he sees a weakness in it, and that is, and that is, is that Matthew Vines is trying to engage in kind of modernistic, exegetical arguments. This is the way Tony Jones would talk, and so he doesn't see that as a strength. He sees that as kind of a, a weakness in the book. Let's hear what Tony Jones has to say. Thank you, Rachel. Tony Jones, what are your reactions to Matthew's book? Um. Well, I, I just wrote a review of Matthew's book along with another book for uh, the Christian Century magazine that I don't know will probably come out this summer at some point. So I did a pretty close read of it myself, and uh, you know, at, at the for the sake of this panel not just being a mutual admiration society, I'll say that, uh, and you know, it's kind of my role. Like I get it. I'll, I'll say that I'm ambivalent. I'm ambivalent about the book. I, I agree with um, what Rachel said, and Jay and I have already talked this morning a little bit about it. And I, I think I will agree with, with Jay, what Jay is going to say, too. I, I agree that with what Rachel says. Is it, it's, what I like about it is it's very straightforward. Like, it's very... Um, it's very simple in its arguments. It's it's not it's it's not a book that's the the book that I've been handing to people for years. That's now in its second edition is Stacy Johnson's book, A Time to Embrace, and it has convinced every single person I've given it to, except with the, with the exception of one person, and I've given it out to dozens of people since it came out. Um, but it's, but it's, that's a very like in-depth, sophisticated book. It's very long. It takes a long time to read, a long time to dig through. This is not that kind of a book. This is the kind of a book that I think you would give to an undergrad student who is on the fence one way or the other. And I think it's, it's, it'll, it'll be very appealing and very convincing. But. For me, what I struggle with is I think that the conservative exegetical angle that Matthew takes is ultimately a dead end. You catch that? Yeah, the conservative exegetical angle. You know, words have real meanings kind of thing. He thinks this is a dead end. And I think Tony Jones knows exactly why it is. Because Matthew Vines' arguments in his book are extremely easy to blow over. I mean, they're not strong at all. Basically, he's come up with a sophisticated way of trying to make the text say mean the opposite of what it says. And that is, in the long run, just not going to hold up. And Tony Jones even identifies the fact that it might be convincing for somebody who's kind of on the fence, but in the long run, he sees this as a dead end. Let's hear Tony Jones out on this one. And so the reason that I think 
um, Al Mohler and those guys at Southern Baptist Seminary are going to crank out a 100-page ebook to argue about how wrong Matthew is. I don't think they're really scared of Matthew's argument so much as they're just going to say, Matthew, you're just doing what liberals do. You're just doing what progressives do. And you're contextualizing these verses and saying it's not really what it's not really about what we think it's about. And so I think the bigger question that interests me is can you still be evangelical and be affirming? And I think that all four of us who are on this live chat are like that's the question we all need to struggle with because as Deb knows like, I fight to have my blog listed in the evangelical list at Patheos as well as the progressive list. And yet he's not, by any stretch of the imagination, evangelical. He's not, by the historic definition, unless evangelicalism doesn't mean anything anymore. And I consider both Jay and Rachel evangelicals. Uh, I consider none of the people I'm looking at on my screen to be evangelicals. But the border guards of evangelicalism, the gatekeepers, Christianity Today, Southern Baptist Seminary, Wheaton College, they're not, they don't think that Rachel and Jay and I are evangelicals. And after this book, they're going to say, Matthew Vines is not an evangelical anymore. So the question for me that I think would be interesting for, like I'd love to hear Matthew's reflection on is what, once he gets around to re replying to these things is, no matter how much you say you're a conservative evangelical, if the people who define that say you're not, are you? Notice he says people who define that. Very postmodern way of looking. It's the people in power who define what evangelicalism is. If, if evangelicalism is synonymous with, and it should be, biblical, historic, orthodox Christianity, then you know it doesn't matter who's in power or who you know is out there as a face of evangelicalism that you know this is a it's an objective definition tony jones is basically saying oh the reason why it's being defined this way is because of the people who are in power and it's the powerful people that are defining evangelicalism and i don't like their definition because it's not expansive enough not progressive enough and whatever no this is real simple is matthew vines somebody who is promoting biblical Christianity and calling people to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, regardless of what that sin is? Answer, no. Rachel Held Evans, is she doing that? No. Tony Jones, not on your life. Jay Baker, yuff, right. Not at all. These people are not evangelical, and yet they are determined to pass themselves off as evangelicals. They want to be seen as evangelical because, well, they, they don't believe that the people in power have the right to define them out of evangelicalism. And yet the question is, is what they're promoting historic biblical orthodoxy? If it is not, then it's not evangelical. It's not even Christian. It's something completely different. All right. Well, I, I, Jay Baker's comments aren't as interesting as Rachel Held Evans and Tony Jones. And like I said, we would get to them if we had time, but we're uh, running out of time this first hour. So uh, what do you think about uh, what you've heard thus far? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. 
another uh, When Youth Pastors Attack sermon review. This is a strange one. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Shoreline Church, Fort Walton Beach in Destin, Florida. Pastor Nathan presiding. Now, I think Nathan is uh, one of their campus pastors. I think he's, well, he kind of sounds like he's been promoted from youth pastor to campus pastor, but... He still has that youth pastor thing going, if you know what I mean. You'll hear it when you when you listen. The name of the sermon, by the way, is entitled Spies. Spies. Yeah. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and kill the music, and we're going to get right to it. And you're going to notice as we're listening to this sermon that uh, Nathan 
Well, again, after listening to the sermon, I'm convinced it may be time for him to experience a random drug screening. Just saying, see if you pick up on the things that I picked up on. Of course, I'll highlight them as we go. So uh, here we go to uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and uh, Shoreline Church in Nathan's sermon entitled Spies. Here we go. Um, so I'm excited, though, to uh, to be a part of this series that we're in. Now, how many, how many, anybody here this week that was here last week? Is there anybody? Yeah, a bunch of us. Yeah, so that's exciting. Last week, man, what a crazy, absolutely crazy weekend it was. I mean, just at, like it was an incredible weekend. If you remember, uh, it was 420 on Sunday. So um, it was just, it was, it was, in fact, I, first drug reference, it was 420. Huh. Why would a Christian pastor want to highlight oh that it was 420 last week? I found this this picture that kind of sums up last weekend. Um if we could show that. Yeah. Um so that kind of sums up the the And he's showing a picture of Snoop Dogg wearing a purple bunny outfit with a basket full of pot. Yep, no joke. That's what's on the church's screen. Can't really uh, for me, uh, but <laughs> no. I, and actually, I love the person whoever photoshopped this put Snoop's face there, but didn't think to change his hands to being a black guy's hands. Uh, uh, that's so still the white hands. I don't like so. Anyway, but yeah, that was it. Was Easter right? And it was crazy. We were able to get people to come to church on Easter when it was also four four twenty. We had volunteers. Like that was crazy. I didn't think we'd have any. That- yeah, when it was also four twenty. Drug humor to start off this sermon. I'll be like, or they'd be here and super chill. So like, but anyway, so we do want to just say a huge thank you to everyone who was here last weekend, especially if you served. I mean, we just all week long have gotten so many like connection cards and reports about, man, everybody was so friendly and, and, uh, the first impressions did such a good job. And our tech team did an incredible job. Our bands at both campuses just killed it last week. And it was, it was absolutely amazing. And, uh, just so many different, and all of our children's environments, I mean, I, I went over and was checking out some of the children's environments uh, during the service, and the kids were just absolutely having a blast, and it, it was just a ton of fun. So if you served last weekend, thanks so much for being a part. Now, today, uh, we are continuing a series called Viva La Vida, and which simply means to live the life, because we believe that God wants you to live the best possible life. And last week, if you were here... Really, uh, what Bible verse uh, supports this Viva La Vida um, theology? God wants you to live the best life. You remember that Pastor Eric, our head honcho pastor, he kicked off the series uh, with a message or a talk called Lost. And we talked about the prodigal son. And throughout that story, we realized that we come to the conclusion that God is more concerned with our proximity than he is with our perfection. And we learned in that story that it wasn't God is more concerned with our proximity than our What is that? What are you talking about? That's really what the takeaway from the prodigal son was? Oy. So much that the prodigal son was like, couldn't be found that he was lost. Is that he, he was outside of a right relationship with his father. And then we also learned last week that Jesus made his way through the cross so he could get to you. 
And it was an absolutely incredible message, and we had a great service last week. And if you missed it, make sure you go to shorelinechurch.net, and you get caught up on this series so you can kind of have more of a reference for where we're at and where we're heading uh, in this series. But like we talked about just a few moments ago, this is a Coldplay series, and we've been basing all of our, all of our kind of topics and different things off Coldplay uh, songs. Now, another crazy thing that happened this week is that my wife and I, Crystal, we celebrated our eighth anniversary. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that great? And so I just want to say, uh, dear, from the bottom of my heart, uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to get to spend the, those eight years with you. And I really just want to say that um, you're welcome. So um, anyway, uh, so we did, we did, we had, our, we celebrated our eighth anniversary uh, this past Monday. And so Monday we went out to breakfast together. And so we went to Harbor Docks and, and we were just sitting and chatting and, and kind of, you know, we talked through and just enjoying each other's company. And it was, you know, early in the morning and it was very beautiful out and there was dolphins going by in the bay. And I mean, it was just absolutely perfect and gorgeous. And, and not only that, the view of my wife was nice too. So that was, that was good. But so it was, and so in, in that time while we were eating breakfast we talked about some of the things that that have happened in our relationship or in our lives over the past year we talked to you know some of the things you know the kids getting older we have a couple of kids the kids getting older we talked and then we also talked about some things that we wanted to see uh, or some goals maybe that we had for this upcoming year and, and, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about over the last few weeks as I, you know, try to grow and learn and develop and all of those things is, you know, I don't want to be the type of person who, who can't look at history, who, who doesn't learn from history. Right? I don't ever want to be that type of person. You can't learn from someone else's mistakes or you can't be, you can't learn from, you know, the way that somebody else has handled the situation and go, you know what? I can learn from that. You know, I don't want to be the type of person who, who, and I don't want to just like say, yeah, like I don't have to learn the hard way, but, and then really I do. Like I really want to live that way, right? Because I feel like you can avoid hardships if you can learn to live that way. And so, uh, you know, you ever, and this always made me laugh. You ever heard somebody say like, you know, I'm the type of person who has to learn the hard way. And on the inside, I always think, oh, so you're dumb. Like, that's what I kind of think. Like, that's how I am. That's what I think. You know, like, in other words, they're saying like, you know, I know millions of people have tried this before in the past. And when they did it, they were not successful. (laughs) But when I do it. It's going to be way different. Like, and you're going like, no, it's not. Like, it's, it's just not going to be like, like somehow you're going to be like the first smart stoner. Like, that, it just, it doesn't, it's not going to happen. It doesn't make sense. Like, I know. <clears throat> That's another drug reference. Smart stoner. Again, the, the guy is kind of obsessed with. 420 and drugs and stoners and stuff like that. But we continue. Millions of people have smoked weed in the past, but, you know, and it didn't make them any smarter. But when I do it, like, I've just become brilliant. Like, and you're just, and you're ever watch. So this happened to me recently. Like, if you, you ever watch a movie with, with a stoner? Like, I have a friend and... and like for real, you ever watch a movie with somebody like, and so, cause Jesus would have hung out with stoners. So I, it, it's, you know, it's, I do my part. So, uh, but, so, but you ever do that? You get, yeah. So he uh, hangs out with stoners, does his part. You know, again, all the weird drug references. What is that about? You're in the middle of a movie. And like, so the other day we were watching, um, uh, star Wars and what's the, at the beginning of the first episode where that big thing blows up. What's that called? The, 
Anybody? The, the big thing, and it blows up in the first episode of Death Star. Thank you. I just wanted to know where all the virgins were in the audience. Uh, so maybe after the... Sur- and so if you know the name of the Death Star from Star Wars, that makes you a virgin. What is this? You can explain to me why Yoda talks like he does, and I'll tell you what it's like to French kiss a real girl. Um, so... <laughs> All right, so the the Death Star thing blows up, and so my friend, my stoner friend, Pastor Eric, I mean, my stoner friend, he was like, he was like, you know, when in space, like, you you could, that couldn't really happen, because in order for an explosion to happen, like, there has to be, like, for fire, there has to be oxygen, and when you're in outer space, there's no oxygen, and so, like, but meanwhile, they're completely accepting the premise that, like, Ewoks aren't are real like that they're not just little people with like bear masks and bear outfits and you're kind of going like how how does this why do you think that you're smart and so the moral of all of this is listen don't do drugs okay like learn from the, the from other people like don't don't have to learn this the hard way your parents are right when they said don't do drugs right now i remember growing up i remember growing up and my parents would say things to me like uh, like they would tell me to do something and they'd tell me not to do something. And, and I, I, as a kid would ask like, well, why? Right. And I was like, uh, kind of like in a, like an intuitive type child. And when I was growing up, like I wanted to know the reason why I was being instructed in a certain way, not because I was rebellious or didn't want to do it, but because like, I wanted to have the wisdom to be able to make the right decision again in the future. And so, like, uh, my parents would tell me something or they'd ask me something and I would say, why? But, of course, when you're, like, four years old and your parents are trying to explain out this elaborate thing and it's, like, going way over your head, uh, the next question that you ask is, why? And then they say, because, and you say, why? And then they say, because, several more times, and you continue to say, why? Until, inevitably, your parents get frustrated and my parents would say, because I said so. And that's what they would do. And and so, like, uh, they would say that. And I remember, like, as I've grown, um, have you ever been in a situation where, like, as you become adult, you you realize, like, hey, that's why my parents said not to do that. Because now there's a guy in a gorilla outfit chasing me down the street at 4 o'clock in the morning. Like, that, I should have never done that. I should have listened. And so, like, you're going. And and so what I did, I call my parents. I call my sisters. And I'm like, hey, remember that thing mom and dad told us not to do when we were growing up? Yeah, here's why. It totally makes sense. Now, don't tell mom and dad that we had this talk, okay? Just, just don't do it. If you do, I'll deny it, okay? I will straight lie. I will say we didn't have this talk and that you've gone crazy and you're on drugs. You didn't listen to what they were saying. All right? But, but no, I will. I, that's- and another reference to being on drugs. Do you think this guy might be on drugs? And that's, so we do, we, and I would call them and I say, that's why they said. And you know what? As I started to grow up and think about having kids, I was like, you know what? I never want to be the type of parent uh, that is like, because I said so. I just, I never wanted to be that. And then I had kids. Um, and then I realized like, no, okay. So one of my oldest daughter, Isley, is six years old. And uh, she started talking um, like she was born. 
And then she started talking like it was pretty, it was pretty immediate, like, like instantly. And she talks a lot. Okay. Like she asks questions all the time and she talks like so much. Now, when I said she talks a lot, whatever you thought of when I said a lot, like multiply that by a hundred. Okay. And then you might begin to be in the ballpark of how much she actually talks. Like she talks a lot and I gave it a fair shot when she was little. Like I really tried. (laughs) All right. Like I really did. Like I, I wanted to try, you know, to explain the importance of why she should do things or why she shouldn't do things. Like I really, really feel like I gave it a fair shot, but she just couldn't comprehend some of the things that I'm, I'm really like some of the reasoning behind. And so inevitably I would lose it with her and I'd say, because I said so. And, you know, I realized that as a kid, my limited perspective with my limited perspective, I could not understand the full reality and grasp the truth of my parents' direction. All right, because my perspective was so limited as a four-year-old, as a six-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 15-year-old, because my perspective was so limited when my parents would tell me something, I could not grasp the full reality of what they were saying. And a lot of times it would make their direction seem unfair, or it would make it seem also oftentimes in a lot of ways, it would make it seem untrue. And so I had to learn to trust what my parents said and not always just what I saw. Okay, now all of this is supposedly the setup for the sermon that's coming. I mean, clearly we're supposed to be in the sermon right now, but yeah, aside from that, we're, we're having major problems. But we continue. And you know, as a kid, the older we get, the less we kind of, like, the, the smarter we think we get, and the less we begin to trust our parents' advice. Right? The smarter we think we get, the less we begin to trust our parents' advice. And inevitably, probably, we've all said something the lines of, well, you just don't want me to have any fun. That's why I can't. And, you know, depending on what your age is, you just don't want me to have any fun. That's why I can't play in the street. You just don't want me to have any fun. That's why I can't eat dirt. You just don't want me to have any fun. That's why I can't go to prom as a freshman. Or or that's why I can't do drugs. Or that's why you don't want me to drink when I'm underage. Or that's why you don't want me to date that guy or date that girl. You just don't want me to have any fun. And we, we get the same attitude sometimes as we develop a relationship with God, right? See, as we age, we do the same thing in our relationship with God, right? You just don't want me to be satisfied in life. And that's why you don't want me to marry that person, God. Or you just, you just don't want me to, to like be fulfilled in my career. That's why I shouldn't take, that's why I can't take that job or take that, you know, that promotion or take that. Or you just don't want me to have any extra disposable income. That's why I have to tithe. Or you just want me to, you don't want me to have any fun. That's why I have to wait till I'm married to have sex. Like you, you just don't want any of those. Like you just don't, you're such a killjoy and we have to come to a place. We have to come to a place where we decide what type of learning style do we have? Mm, yeah, boy. Have you uh, ever sat down and really had that really important conversation with God about what, what learning style you have? Clearly, this is an important step for uh, Christian sanctification. Yeah, I unfortunately, God and I haven't had that conversation yet, so I haven't made the decision as to what learning style I have. So clearly, I'm way behind in my sanctification. Are we going to learn the hard way, or are we going to learn 
the easy way? Are we going to learn like, ah, I got to learn the hard way. Are we going to be able to learn from, from history or from mistakes or for, for trusting God's perspective? You know, what's really interesting about this is we see the Israelites faced with this same decision in Joshua chapter 3. The Israelites were faced with the decision of deciding what learning style they needed to have in Joshua 3. Okay, I missed that. I've read my Bible through many times, and yet I've never remembered the story of the children of Israel choosing their learning style. Now, if you know the Israelites are God's chosen people and their nation and God's like done a whole bunch of really, really neat things for them. But here's what's happening. Joshua is kind of like the new leader of Israel at this point in the story. And so he's leading uh, the Israelites, the, the nation of Israel. He's leading them into this promised land, which is this land that God like said, hey, I promised. And I think he promised it to their parents, uh, basically this generation's parents. And he says, look, I, I'm going to lead you to this place. I'm going to lead you to this promised land. And it's a great place for them to be it is like this it's like this the the agriculture there is great and and it says i believe in scripture that like literally flows with milk and honey like it's just this absolutely beautiful place and it's this kind of like this paradise and so god's got this place waiting for them and and so like they just have to get there and so uh joshua is leading the people to the promised land now on the route that they are on now in order to get where they're going They have to cross the Jordan River. Now, at this time of year, when they're about to cross the Jordan River, at this time of year, the Jordan River was in flood. It was flood season. And so the banks of the river were, were much higher than they normally would be. And the river was much wider than it would be when it's, you know, not flood season, when it's more of a dry season. And in fact, if you know anything about the Jordan River, if you've ever been in the area, you probably know that the Jordan River is one of the fastest flowing rivers in the world. And so here's what God instructs Joshua to do. He says, listen, if you will have, if you will have the priests step into the water. Fastest flowing rivers in the world, really, the Jordan, huh? Um, How fast does it flow there as compared to like, you know, maybe the Mississippi or, you know, other um, rivers? Um, I mean, what, I mean, is it five miles an hour faster, 10 miles an hour? I mean, is it coming down like just the shoot and, you know, I mean, hmm. we continue. As soon as they step into the water, I will stop it. As soon as the priests put their feet in the water, I will stop the water and you will be able to cross the river. The whole nation will be able to cross on dry land. So that's where we're going to pick up the story today in Joshua chapter 13, starting at the end of verse 15. And if you're here today and you didn't bring a Bible or you brought one, but you realize it's a little dark in here and you want to follow along with the notes or the scriptures, you can go to shorelinechurch.com. You can go to shorelinelive.com and you can get all of the scriptures and the notes and everything. There's a bunch of stuff on there today that, that coincides with the message. But this is where we're going to pick it up. Joshua chapter 3, starting at the end of verse Verse 15, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing and it piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. 
The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was like this box that kind of housed the, the literal presence of God. If you've seen, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's the, that's the same thing. Okay, that's what they're looking for in that. So the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of God stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing, completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, this is an absolutely incredible story. This is really, really neat. And what I find interesting is that, you know, God tells uh, Joshua, he says, listen, as soon as the priests put their feet in the water, the water is going to stop. But what you may not have caught from reading that is it says that the water stopped in Adam. Now, we don't geographically know exactly where Adam is. And in, in a, in, in throughout this scripture, it does reference another city that says it's close to it. And so we don't know exactly where it is. But uh, one Bible commentary suggested that it is about 30 miles north of where they were. They weren't in Adam. So one Bible commentary, just one, said that it's possible that where Israel crossed the Jordan was actually 30 miles south of the city of Adam. Okay. Right. Um, but let's kind, of, let's kind of point this out here. Let's go back to the text. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water... Now, the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. Okay, so that's great. So, um, yeah, your point is what exactly? What does this have to do with Israel picking a learning style? And so God tells Moses, or excuse me, God tells Joshua, he says, listen, as soon as you put your feet in the water, the water's going to stop. And so now the, the priests are kind of, they're in the water and they're going like, wait a minute. And so they have this choice. They have this decision to make. Uh, the text doesn't say that when their feet hit the water, they went, uh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that. And they do they allow their limited perspective and lack of understanding of the reality of the situation to prevent them from experiencing what God had done for them. <laughs> really? Um, are you using some weird transmogrifier to read the minds of the priests after they put their feet in the water? Hmm. This is ridiculous. Or, do they stand in the river and trust God? Trust what God had said. Stand in the river and trust God. I think the, the issue is they do need to trust God, and clearly they did. And God made good on what he said he would do. He didn't quite explain how that would go down. And by the way, we really don't know what's going to happen. You know, you know how it's going to look you know, to have a river all of a sudden begin to stop flowing, okay? And they ended up crossing on dry ground. So not only did God cause the river to stop flowing, he ended up drying up the ground that they were going across the Jordan on. So uh, this is kind of like a mini version of the uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, if you would. 
So, um, but the point here is that Nathan, I mean, aside from his jug, drug jokes, which were highly inappropriate and very offensive for him to be delivering in a church, um, you know, yet alone anywhere as a Christian, you know, to be doing that. Um, but the other thing is, is that now he's reading into the minds of the people of Israel and somehow equating this, that we've got to learn how to, how, you know, choose a right learning style the way the Israelites did, um, especially when we can't understand things uh, and we need to trust God, even though we, our limited perspective is like, whatever. The, the text isn't saying this at all. It's like he's seeing something in the text that isn't really there. And although what he's trying to do is fill out the details, um, he's ultimately narcissizing this text and putting us into the center of it because now here's going to come the, you know, the, the major question, you know, what river are you standing in? Yeah, that's, that's where he's going to go with this. We continue. And so they have to make this decision. And you see what I find interesting about this whole story is you have to understand the previous generation. You have to understand what happened to their parents. All of those people who are about to cross the Jordan River, you have to understand what happened to their parents. You see, their parents were supposed to have already been in the promised land. Their parents were supposed to have been there already. They should have been there by now. And have you ever heard the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho? And Jericho is one of the places that they're going. And, the, you know, this is where they have to go and fight and, and all of that. It really should have been. The story should be Moses and the walls of Jericho. But it's not. And we find this story in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. And so what's happening is Moses is leading Israel before Joshua does. Moses is leading Israel and Moses leads Israel. He leads this great nation. He leads them out of slavery from Egypt. And then he leads them across the Red Sea, like as they're being chased by their enemies. And and he leads them and, and God just miraculously provides for them and takes care of them and all of those things. And they're coming up on the promised land or on Jericho. And so God says to Moses, listen, I'm going to give you the promised land. That's what he tells Moses. And so here's what I want you to do as part of your strategy as you go to fight and conquer the city is I want you to send in 12 spies. I want you to send in 12 spies so that way they can scope out the place and that way they can... Notice he's conflating two stories, the story of the fall of Jericho and the story of the 12 spies. He's conflating the two stories into one. Come back and you guys can put together a good strategy on how you can take over Jericho. And so Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. And he sends in 12 spies and two spies come back. Uh, They all come back, but two come back, uh, Caleb and Joshua, Caleb and Joshua come back and say, you know what, man, everything God said about how great that land is, is absolutely true. Everything that God said. Absolutely incredibly true. Like it is, the agriculture is incredible. It's, it's got beautiful view. I mean, it's, it's such a great city. Like everything there is just beautiful. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is just such a great place. And, and so they, these two spies, they give a good report and they say, you know what? If God said we can take the city, we're going to take the city. And then the other 10 spies, they said, yeah, it is a great place. But man, I don't know. The infrastructure, I mean, the way they've built that city, it's going to be pretty hard to penetrate. And you know what? I mean, you, you should. 
Really, they didn't say anything about the city of Jericho. It's going to be hard to penetrate that, man, because, you know, they built that city on rock and roll, man. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, clearly not somebody who's studied to show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. Good night. Hey there, soldiers. Hey, those dudes are pretty buff. And those guys are pretty big. And, and, you know, uh, they looked pretty organized and they looked like they had it together and they would be the ones with the ed- with the advantage. And, and they, they, they say, in fact, one of them even says, like, compared to them, we would be grasshoppers. We, we would be insects. We would be little tiny bugs compared to how great that they are. And God, like, can't believe what he's hearing. God gets, like, super frustrated. And he, he go, he's talking to Moses and he says, like, how can they not trust me? How can they not believe I told them that I was going to give them the city? I told them that this was their, this is their promised land, that they can have it. And then I was going to take care of them. I'm going to get them there. And then 10 of the spies come back with the report that says, yeah, we better not do it. And God gets so frustrated with them. This is what he says in Numbers chapter 14. Starting in verse 29. He says, in the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land that I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. Man, so now a whole generation of people has to die off before they can go and take the promised land. And so clearly at that moment, they didn't choose a a good learning style, which is a very important thing that we all need to make a decision about right now. What's going to be your learning style? Joshua has the priests standing in the river, right? Joshua, he fast forward to the next generation. Joshua is now leading the people and he has the priest standing in the river because God said, as soon as you put your feet in the water, that I'm going to stop the water. And he has to decide, am I going to learn the hard way like Moses and our parents, or am I going to learn from the past? Am I going to learn from history? In other words, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust what God said or am I going to trust what I see? It says, am I going to allow my limited perspective and understanding of the uh, understanding of the full reality of the situation to prevent me from grasping God's truth, the truth of God's word? And am I or am I going to believe that God is a liar and get back out of the river? And so the priests, they stand in the river. And they stand there, and they stand there. And the text doesn't say, and they stood there, and they stood there, and they stood there. The text doesn't actually say that. Here's what it says again. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows its banks, the waters 
coming down from above, stood and rose up in a heap very far away. It says as soon as their feet hit the water. It doesn't say, and they stood there, and they stood there, and they stood there, and they stood there. The text doesn't say that. And they stand there, and they stand there. And finally, 30 miles worth of water passes them by. The water comes to a complete stop. And finally, uh uh-huh. Again, the text doesn't talk about the long wait. You're adding that. And the entire nation of Israel is able to cross over the Jordan River on dry ground. Just like God had promised. And so I have a few questions for you today. I have a few questions for you to ask yourself about this story. This number one is this. What learning style do I have? Right, because this is all about picking the right learning style. Who knew that Joshua 3 is all about making sure you have the right learning style? I'm going to go beat my head against a rock. What learning style do I have? You know, am I one of those people that I have to learn the hard way? Or can I learn the smart way? And let me tell you, if you're one of those people who has to learn the hard way, you will miss out on things that God has for you. You will miss out on things that God has for you in your life if you are one of those people that has to learn the hard way. And number two, do you know what God says about you? Do you know what God says about you? That's a really important question. Do you know? You mean like forgiven, justified? redeemed, washed, you know, things like that regarding me as a sinner who's been made right before God by what Christ has done. Is that what you're talking about? That the Bible is full of promises for you, that God has an opinion about you. And scripture, the Bible is very clear about what it is. And I know God says good things about who you are and that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I know some of you are here today and you're going like, yeah, but I don't really feel like God really cares much about me. And you've got to ask yourself, am I going to allow the, uh, am I going to trust what I see or I'm going to trust, am I going to trust what God says? Number three, you have to ask yourself this. What spies am I listening to? I don't know any spies. And if I knew they were spies, then they'd probably have to kill me. What spies am I listening to? What, what are the people around me? Who am I listening to? Am I listening to people who are in tune with what, what God is trying to speak to me? Or I'm just listening to anyone. Right? Don't let people talk you out of the river. Yeah, don't let anyone talk you out of the river because this is all about you going into the river and waiting for 30 miles of water to allegorically pass by you. I mean, this is so ridiculous. Don't let people talk you out of your river. And then the last thing to ask yourself is this. How can I speak life to those around me who are standing in the river. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's standing in the river. Their feet would get all wrinkly. And you know, that's a tricky one. That is a tricky one because, you know, uh, a good intention person can say the wrong thing. 
Somebody with really, really good intentions can totally say the wrong thing. Somebody who intends well can, can totally blow it and miss God. The, the t- 10 spies who came back and gave, gave the report to Moses, they had really, really good intentions. Their intentions were to protect their nation. Their intentions were to protect, you know, like to save their people and to not take an unnecessary risk. They had really, really good intentions. And yet they made the wrong decision. How can you speak life to those around you who are standing in the river? Do these applications make any sense to you at all? I mean, they don't mean anything. It's complete gobbledygook. I know inevitably here today, some of you are thinking, but yeah, Nathan, you, I mean, you just don't understand. I mean, we, you know, my mom, she got sick a few years ago. She did, and we prayed. I mean, we we trusted God. We prayed, and we asked God to heal her. And, and we, you know, we want it. Uh, and and we just feel like, and like, what? Well, what? How? How do I deal with that? And, and deal with what you're trying to teach today. And and here's what I would encourage you to do: Don't let your limited perspective and lack of understanding of the full reality of the situation hinder you from grasping the truth of who God is. You see, bad things still happen because we live in a broken world. Bad things sometimes still happen because we live in a broken world. And let me just share with you this. When bad things do happen to you, I want you to know that God's heart breaks for you in those situations. But it was never his intention and it was never his intention for bad things to happen. So here's the deal. I don't know what river... You're standing in today. I'm not standing in a river. This is just preposterous what you're doing to God's word. I don't know what situation's going on in your life. And maybe you're here and, and you're not a follower of Christ. You, you know, you're not sure what, what you believe or, or whatever. And, and we just want to say, if that's you today, I just want to thank you for being here. And we're excited that you're here with us. And we, we say this here at Shoreline, you don't have to believe what we believe to come to our church. You don't have to believe that at all. And maybe. And what exactly do you guys believe there? Here today, and you're not a Christ follower, and you're kind of in this river of, you know, well, is, is God even real? I mean, is, is God real? Or- so are you in the river of God? Is, is God real? How on earth does this even relate to the text in Joshua 3? Maybe you're here today and, and recently you got a diagnosis in your body and uh, from a doctor about, you know, your health or you, there's some things going so on. So are you in the river of cancer in your body and, and you're not, you're in this river of, of does God heal? I mean, does, does God really heal people? Or maybe you're here today and your finances are struggling. I mean, I don't mean like you don't have a lot of disposable income. I mean, like you're broke. You, you don't have anything. I mean, you got bills p- p- piling up faster than... Do you have anything su- substantive to offer these people? You know, like Christ and him crucified for their sins. Have you heard of this concept? Have you considered calling them to repent and to be forgiven and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and have eternal life, even though their body's going to be put into a box and buried six feet under? unless Christ returns first. Have you considered something like the gospel? You've heard of it. 
You have income coming in and you're in this river of, can God provide? Can God really provide everything that I need? Or maybe you're here tonight and today and you're, you're single and you're going like, yeah, you're in this river of, does God, I mean, cause you know, I, I'm hitting 30, I'm hitting 35, I'm hitting 40 soon, you know, where, whatever age you're at. And you're like, does God really, you're in this river of, does God really want me to be happy? Does God really want me to find someone that I can spend the rest of my life with? Because, you know, everybody knows that Joshua 3 and the crossing of the Jordan is really about the river that you find yourself in. Oh, boy. Maybe you're, you're here today and your family's just falling apart. Your kids have gone wild and they're just, you know, they're, they're just not living right. They, don't, they won't come to church with you anymore. They won't. All of those things. Or, or your marriage is struggling. You, you know, you, you, there's... If I were a teenager and my parents were going to a church like this, I wouldn't want to go to church either. Atheism would look really good. There's some problems in the home and, and you're in this river of, but man, does, does God really restore relationships? Does God really restore relationships? And I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what river you're in here today. But I want you to know that this is not the time to get out of the river. Okay, because listen to me, God's word. (laughs) And how are people supposed to get out of these rivers, these metaphorical, allegorical rivers that you're talking about? Okay, let's just take, for instance, the person that you said, you know, is God, are they in the river of, of does God heal? And they've got a terrible diagnosis regarding their health. How exactly are they supposed to step out of that river? And where was the word of God that they were trusting in as they stepped into the river? This, this doesn't make any lucid sense. Is true, and God, God has said some things about your situation, and God has said some things to you, and God, and listen, God's word, you can take that to the bank because here's some things that I. Yeah, what things am I taking to the bank exactly? Oh, that God's word, it is perfect. Uh, it is a perfect guide for your life. And God's word is for everyone, and God's word is sweet like honey, and it is food. Yeah, exactly. How is that supposed to help somebody who's dying of cancer? for our soul and it is a fire that purifies and it is a hammer that breaks us and it is a sword and it is a seed for salvation planted in us and it is milk that nourishes us and God's word it won't pass away and God's word is life and it's healing for those who find it and God's word is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light onto our path and God's word is pure and it's true and it's trustworthy and it's effective and it's powerful and when god says something to you you can take it to the bank because it's real what does god say to me in his word does he promise me health does he promise me wealth does he promise me a spouse where does god promise those things What are the real promises that Christians cling to and hang on to that we can take to the bank? It's not about temporal things here on earth. It's about eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So you can trust what God says and not what you see in the reality of your situation. And you have to understand because God says some really good stuff about who you are.
Yeah, he said some great stuff about who I am. Wow, wow. Whoa, this is ridiculous. God says really good stuff about who we are. In fact, did you know God says that I am far from oppression and that fear does not come near me? God says that I am holy and without blame. God says that I have the peace of God. He says that I am wise. He says that I lack uh, nothing because God supplies all of my needs. He says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says that I am his child. He says that I am his workmanship. He says that I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. He says that I am more than a conqueror. He says that I'm an overcomer. Yeah, every one of these verses ripped out of context turned into some kind of slogan. That I'm part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a uh, purchased people. He says that I am the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. He says that I am the head and not the tail. That I am above and not beneath. That I am forgiven of all of my sins. That I'm redeemed from the curse of sin and sickness and of poverty. He says that I am healed by Jesus' stripes. He says that I am greatly loved. And he says that the, the strength with uh, that I am strengthened with all the might according to his glorious power. And he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he says, that it is not I who live anyway, but it is. So this is like the machine gun of out of context verses. It would have been better for him to just deal with one of these or two of these in context and drill down as to what they mean. Christ who lives in me. And so I don't know what situation that you find yourself in or what river you're standing in today, but I want to... Rem- I'm not standing in a river, even an allegorical one. Mind you that the promises of God are on the other side of that river. So if the river knocks you down, get up, but don't get out of the river. Why would the river knock me down when in Joshua chapter 3, the water stood up in a heap and they pe- the people crossed on dry ground? What are you talking about? Stay in the river because God... Stay in the river. Yeah, there's some advice. How exactly do I do that again? wants to teach you a few things in that river. He wants to teach you perseverance. He Maybe he wants to teach me how to swim and to fish. He wants to teach you patience. He wants you to teach you how to rely on him. Just don't get out of the river. Maybe God wants to give you a canoe or a kayak and you can go whitewater rafting in the river. Let's pray. No. There you go. I I don't know what that was. Don't know what that was. And I have no idea why there were all those drug references in the beginning of the sermon. Yeah, no clue. But, you know, aside from the fact that Nathan is not qualified to preach or teach, um, you know, it may be time to actually, you know, show up at his cubicle and say, hey, you know, Nathan, um, we have a policy here. It's called random drug screening, and it's time to have you tested. Just, you know, we're not picking on you personally. We do this with everybody from time to time, so it's just your day. You won the lottery, so here's a cup. I think it might be time for that. What did you think of that sermon? It was a total train wreck. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions 
of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>